have a book coming out. It's titled Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class, which I'm excited to chat with you about. But our audience is likely already familiar with you for pioneering the concept of luxury beliefs, which you define as opinions of beliefs that confer status on the upper class, often at a cost to the lower classes. So mm -hmm. we can think here of examples like fashionable support for defund the police among American elites at a certain point in time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have you have a unique and multifocal insight into all of this, which makes for an incisive analysis. You write from experience inside the most prestigious social environments. You were a Gates Scholar at Cambridge, where you earned your PhD in psychology, and you attended Yale before that. But your path is highly unusual. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and how that shaped how you think about these issues and your, your current work? Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks, Beige. I mean, I've, yeah, I got a PhD at Cambridge and went to Yale for undergrad. Uh, but before um, entering these universities, my life was a lot different. Um, so in my book, I document my experiences. Um, you know, from essentially from birth up until roughly the present, you know, sort of the most vivid and, uh, you know, most, hopefully the most interesting stories and memories from my life um, leading up here. So I was born into poverty in Los Angeles. Um, my mother, uh, I, I, I never met my father. Um, my birth mother and I were homeless for a time, uh, we lived in a car. Eventually, we settled into this slum apartment uh, in L.A., and my mom was heavily addicted to drugs. Um, by the time I was three years old, she, uh, you know, was, was so neglectful and just so, just not in a position to care for me anymore. The, uh, the neighbors at one point, you know, heard me screaming and uh, they called the police and the police arrived and saw just the kind of squalor that we were living in. And you know, later I read these documents from the social worker responsible for my case, uh, which said, you know, my mom would have people coming in and out of the apartment at all hours of the night, trading favors for drugs. Um, so I was placed into the foster care system when I was three and lived in seven different foster homes. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was a very difficult experience. Some of these homes had upwards of eight or 10 children living in them. Um, it was extremely chaotic and destabilizing to, I mean, first to be taken from my mother, uh, in the first place, the only parent I'd known, and then to essentially be relocated to different homes every few months. That was hard moving schools all the time, different teachers, different classmates, different foster siblings. The other thing that was hard was, of course, not only knowing or not knowing where I would be going next, but also I would befriend some of my foster siblings. We'd form a bond and I'd grow close with them. And then they might be taken to another home uh, unexpectedly. Or more often what happened for a lot of these kids is that you know, their their mom would sober up or their dad would get out of prison or someone in their family, some relative would re-enter the picture and take them in. And 
um, oftentimes that relative would then relapse or have some other personal difficulty. And sometimes the foster sibling would actually reappear like two weeks later. Um, and so people will ask me, you know, why is the foster system set up to where kids are frequently relocated to different homes so often? And one reason is because often a relative does become available to care for the kid again. And if a child has remained for too long with a particular foster family, this can create issues around loyalty. And so, you know, if a kid has stayed with a family for six months or a year, and then their mother or someone re-enters the picture and wants to take care of the kid, the kid doesn't want to leave oftentimes in those cases. And so the system is designed essentially to constantly move the kid so that he never grows attached, he or she never grows attached to any particular caregiver, which I guess in theory, maybe at someone at some point thought that sounded like a good idea. But for a lot of kids, this just creates a lot of needless instability. For someone like me, um, you know, my father was gone. My mother was never going to be able to care for me again. Um, no one actually looked closely at my case file to recognize this and realize that I should have been put up for adoption a lot sooner than I was. Um, you know, the foster system in basically every major city in America is overflowing with kids. They don't have enough social workers. They don't have enough people who are able to manage the caseload. And there aren't that many foster parents um, who are available to care for kids either. And so it's just a really uh, bleak situation for the kids um, who are, you know, not with their parents anymore and living in this very sort of unstable situation. And yeah, so I document, you know, my, my experiences there and how difficult this was for me and how, you know, poorly I was doing in school, how, you know, at, at one point my foster mother and my teacher thought I had a learning disability um, because I wasn't really able to read and I was very unfocused in school. And I just, you know, in, in, at the time I didn't really understand what was going on, but mm -hmm. in hindsight, it was just kind of shocking to me to think that, well, you're moving this kid every three months, changing schools every three months, moving homes every six months, and he's not doing well in school. And the thing that comes to mind is a learning disability and not, you know, right. what does his home life look like? You know, yeah. is, is someone reading to him at home? Is someone monitoring his academic progress? Someone mm -hmm. making sure he's doing his assignments? Um, right. And yeah, I mean, it's funny, I, I looked at, so I actually have the results. Uh, so they, I had to take an IQ test uh, when I was seven and I looked at the results and it was like, yeah, like well below average, my verbal scores, like everything was just, you know, and, you know, that was clearly not an accurate assessment of my academic potential. But, you know, it's like, you can't really get an accurate sense of anyone's potential in those circumstances. And so I just think like the, the whole way we approach these things, um, you know, we could, we could think more deeply about what's going on in these, these kids' lives, not just foster kids, but any kid living in, you know, extreme uh, instability uh, in chaos and uncertainty and deprivation. Yeah, and you do touch on that in the book and elsewhere in your writing uh, that we really don't give as much weight as we should to this idea of, of a stable home life, um, mm -hmm. of a stable environment for children as opposed to other factors that we think might influence their outcome as adults or their trajectory. Um, maybe you can... Uh, dip into that a little bit. 
Yeah, well, yeah, I just think it's something that we could focus more on. There's a lot of discussion among people who influence education policy and the discourse and culture about how to think about upward mobility. And there's a lot of concentration on inequality and poverty, Mm -hmm. material deprivation. And, you know, I never, you know, I'm not claiming these things are unimportant. And I do acknowledge in the book that these things are worth thinking about. But alongside that, we could also be focusing on more um, sort of intangible needs that children often have. They're, they're, They're more difficult to measure, but things like emotional security and attachment and feeling love and feeling, you know, the warmth and security of being with two parents who have your priorities in mind. And so I cite, you know, there's there's a, a large body of research on this, on the, basically researchers are able to distinguish between childhood poverty versus childhood instability. And so poverty is essentially defined as, you know, growing up in a very low income family. And when researchers look at the connection between growing up poor and future life outcomes, uh, things like likelihood of getting involved in substance abuse or uh, incarceration or teen pregnancy or violence or any sort of detrimental outcomes, you know, reduce likelihood of graduating from high school or college. The link between child poverty and those outcomes, it's kind of tenuous at best. I mean, some studies show kind of a weak correlation between those two things. Others show no correlation at all. But when you look at childhood instability and those outcomes, there is a strong and reliable effect there. And so instability is measured by things like how frequently you relocated when you were a kid, different homes, how uh, whether you were raised by married parents, divorced parents, how many different partners your parents had when you were growing up living around you. you know, if you're dad had different girlfriends or your mom had different boyfriends or just people, unfamiliar adults constantly coming and going through your life. Um, Basically, how much day-to-day disorder did you experience growing up? The link between instability and detrimental outcomes later in life is significant. And when researchers control for family income, the link remains significant. And so essentially, you know, if you have a, a wealthy family, but there's divorce and addiction and you know, a, a lot of sort of emotional turmoil in that family, you know, the, a kid growing up in that environment is going to uh, have a more difficult life later, statistically speaking, than if you have a kid who grows up with two materially impoverished, low-income parents, but who uh, prioritize the well-being of the child and ensure that the kid is looked after and taken care of and creates a sort of safe and secure environment for them. And so, you know, even if they may not have as much in the way of you know, luxury goods or material goods. Um, you know, the fact that having, you know, having two loving parents is you know, the claim I make is that it's at least as important as having enough money. And we are very preoccupied, I think, in American society with those kinds of conventional badges of success of, mm-hmm. you know, we need to get more kids into college. We need to get more kids into high paying jobs and we need to, you know, lift social mobility and, all those things. And it's, it's fine. I mean, it's better than not having them. It's better, you know, going to college or having a lot of money or those kinds of things on average, you know, those are usually better than not having it, but those aren't like the, 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 the most important goals in life. Those, those shouldn't necessarily be number one on our agenda. We should also be looking at what happens before the age of 18 
of what a kid's life looks like before they go on to college or wherever else they, they may wind up. And all of the research I've seen suggests that, you know, if you want a kid to sort of thrive and flourish and be happy and healthy and successful, uh, what their family life is like is critical in predicting those outcomes. And the other thing is that for someone like me, um, you know, a point that I made a couple of times in the book is that, you know, even if every single kid who lives in foster care or every single you know, kid who grows up in sort of poor, dysfunctional environment does go on to you know, a college and you know, gets a good job and is professionally successful, that doesn't make up for the wounds or the scars of their early life. It doesn't make those things suddenly okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I realized later when I graduated from Yale, uh, and I write about this in the book that you know, I did feel happy, my adoptive mom, and she was proud of me, my sister was proud of me, but I did realize at that moment that, you know, this, you know, I, I would have given up these accomplishments uh, to basically have never lived that kind of life that I had uh, when I was a kid. Yeah. So you spent, you spent years, maybe from about three until about eight or so in the, mm-hmm. in the foster system in, in Los Angeles, and then you were you were adopted. What happened then when you moved to to a small town in Northern California? Yeah, well, so I was seven, almost eight years old uh, when I, I was living in this foster home in LA and my foster mother notified me that you know, I was going to be adopted and you know, I had the Mr. and Mrs. Henderson and that's how I referred to them because that's how I referred to all of my foster parents and you know, they told us you can call us mom and dad and we're going to adopt you. And it was really, um, you know, it was, it was a sort of a high highlight. It was a bright spot, um, in my childhood. Um, and so they adopted me and took me in and I was thrilled. They had a, a daughter who became my adoptive sister. She was their birth daughter. And, um, you know, we had like a conventional, you know, family for a time. And then after a little over a year, they divorced this was really difficult for me. Um, and my adoptive father subsequently stopped speaking with me. Um, he was, you know, he basically wanted to retaliate at my adoptive mother for leaving him. And he knew that by cutting off contact with me, this would hurt her. And so after, you know, after never knowing my birth father and then all the foster homes and then losing contact with my adoptive father, this was, really hard on me. So by this point I was nine years old and, you know, I was, you know, my, my mom and me, we moved into this kind of gloomy duplex in town and she was working full time and she was, you know, trying to keep things financially afloat and she was unable to sort of monitor what I was getting up to or how I was doing in school. And her attention was spread pretty thin and I was just hanging out with other kids in the neighborhood. I mean, it's funny, like in hindsight, what happened was, you know, I was living in foster homes, but then I moved to this kind of dusty blue collar working class town with my adoptive family called Red Bluff. And I got to witness um, kind of the, you know, the deterioration uh, in kind of working class American communities. So this was Mm -hmm. the late nineties, sort of the, you know, the, the beginnings, or at least like sort of the midway through sort of hollowing out, you know, this was kind of 
just as the opioid crisis was about to kick off the um, the, the housing crisis uh, that was about to happen in 2007. It started to happen in California in 2006, which affected my family too. And so there was a lot of sort of you know, drug abuse and financial turmoil and um, families falling apart. Um, I cite these statistics in the book showing that um, in 1960, 95% of U.S. children were raised by both of their birth parents, regardless of social class. But by 2005, for the upper class, it had dropped slightly to 85%. Uh, so it was 95%, dropped to 85%. But for working class families, it dropped from 95% in 1960 to 30% in 2005. And that's basically the picture that I saw. Uh, 30% was actually, I mean, it's probably a bit higher uh, than what I saw in Red Bluff. Um, just a lot of kind of blue collar working class families. Um, and my parents, or my, my, my friends, uh, their parents were, you know, it was kind of that, like the most common picture. I mean, I could just say like my, I had five close friends growing up. Two of them were raised by single moms. One was raised by a single dad. Uh, one was raised by his grandmother because his dad was in prison and his mom was addicted to drugs. And this wasn't like, you know, this wasn't the inner city. This was, you know, kind of a rural area in Northern California where most people didn't have college degrees and people worked at the mill or people worked kind of like, you know, jobs that didn't require uh, a lot of education. Um, and so, you know, I was observing this as a kid and in hindsight, as an adult, I can sort of see the patterns and the trends. And so for me growing up in that, you know, sort of losing my father, my mother, and so I just basically got into trouble with a lot of other sort of kids raised in similar circumstances. So by the time I was nine, I was like, you know, I'd already drank beer by the time I was five when I was in the foster homes. But when I was nine, I started drinking tequila, smoking a lot of weed, smoking cigarettes. Um, we started to take uh, like generic cold medicine from the store to get high. And then eventually we graduated to prescription drugs and generic Vicodin and whatever else we could get our hands on. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, did other things, fist fights and vandalizing buildings. And it was, um, you know, it was fun for us, but part of it was on some level acting out this kind of anger. Uh, the fact that, you know, all of these adults had let us down. And when, as a kid, adults let you down, you eventually learn to let yourself down. Yeah. So then what happens? Why did you decide at 17 uh, that you wanted to join? the Air Force? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot had happened uh, throughout my life um, till that point with, I mean, there were more separations, more divorces, more drama. Um, but by the time I was 17, I knew I had to get out of there. Um, but I wasn't in a position to go to college. I had a 2.2 GPA. I was barely passing my classes. Um, I was ditching them half the time anyway. And I didn't even know like the first place to begin. No one in my family went to college. I just didn't even know, like I didn't sign up to take the SAT. It just wasn't really a serious possibility. Yeah. But, you know, this was, you know, this was basically the military was like the only option that I had really to, to immediately get out of that situation where I had, um, I, one, I, so my, my senior year of high school, I lived with my, my best friend and his dad and his brother too. And his dad had been in the military and he thought, oh, maybe this might be a good idea for you. Uh, one of my history teachers, he had also been, he was in the Air Force and he basically suggested it, you know, 
this is the thing. Like a lot of teachers are actually pretty good. Like there's a lot of discussion about, oh, te- you know, we need to pay more teachers more. Or teachers need more support or resources or something. And maybe all of those things are true, but mm-hmm. generally teachers are pretty good at like, they, they can spot smart kids and they can encourage them all they want. But if the kid's home life is a mess, like they can't like magically force a kid to do their homework or to focus in class. And the yeah. thing was like, I had c- consistently throughout you know, uh, preschool, elementary school, middle school, and high school, teachers could spot that I was like a pretty curious kid and mm-hmm. they could identify there was some latent potential in me. But I was just such a like unfocused. And then later, by the time I was a teenager, just like a smart aleck, just a, you know, a troublemaker, class clown, whatever. And, you know, teachers would say like, what are you doing? Like, you're a smart kid. You should be going to college. Like, why are you not doing your homework? Why are you not? And I just like, you know, F you like that was just the attitude that I had. <laughs> yeah. And so at 17, I'm like, man, like, you know, I just basically squandered like these years in school and what do I do now? And, um, so I kind of joined, you know, I enlisted on a whim and in hindsight, it turned out to be a really good decision. I mean, I guess, you know, the other thing was at some level I knew I, I had two jobs in high school. I worked uh, as a dishwasher and a busboy at a restaurant and then as a bag boy at a grocery store. And I had older male coworkers. You know, I worked with these guys who were like in their mid, mid or late 20s. And, you know, they would buy my friends and I beer, hook us up with weed, or like sometimes like come to the parties we were at and stuff. And even when I was 17, I was like glad they were getting beer for us. But on some level, I was like, it's pretty weird that you're like 28 <laughs> years old hanging out with a bunch of high schoolers. Like what's like, like, I I have to not become that. (laughs) Yeah. I was like looking 10 years down the road. Is this the guy I want to be? Right. And the answer was no. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there was a lot of sort of factors like that involved in my decision to get out of there. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I I left when I shipped out the basic training uh, in Texas. Yeah. When I was 17, I was the youngest guy in my basic training unit. Um, I had to have my adoptive mom sign, a, you know, what essentially amounted to a permission slip because I was underage, um, in order for me to enlist at such a young age. And, um, yeah, basically, you know, to this day, it was probably, you know, arguably the first smart decision I ever made and <laughs> maybe the best one yeah. because it completely just sort of changed my trajectory and got me out of that really, um, kind of bleak environment that I was in. So fast forward, uh, deployments in the Middle East and you were in Europe, but let's fast forward. So you end up on the campus of Yale. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is this like for you? In the book, you you do describe a kind of culture shock that you encounter, but what is it like when you first get there? What does the experience feel like? I mean, at first it felt like a, like a dream. You know, I just had this feeling of like, man, maybe they made a mistake. Like, do I really belong here? It was, mm-hmm. I mean, it were a lot of different factors that set me apart from a lot of the students there. I mean, first it was, you know, I, I had taken some, some night classes at a community college and I felt like right in, you know, the people who go to night class at a community college, a lot of them are adults who are working full time or single moms or people, you know, uh, retirees, people, you know, just adults who are interested in furthering their education. Um, but then I get to Yale and it's like, it's very much that sort of picturesque stereotypical, like, you know, residential college campus where all of the freshmen are like 18 years old and you know it's like out of a movie and um i just felt like wow i can't believe they let me in here 
And <laughs> at first it was fine. I mean, I, I tried to fit in, you know, I, I made some friends. It was okay. It was a little weird. I mean, I was 25. Um, and, you know, it was funny, like the first year I actually made friends with some seniors because like they were old enough, yeah, they were older, they'd had like, you know, maybe they'd done an internship, like they had a little bit of contact with adult life. Um, and they were old enough to drink and stuff. And so I could hang out with like, you know, the 22 year old seniors, but then they all graduated. And I'm like, ah, oh, all my friends are gone. And I like, mm -hmm. you know, eventually figured it out, you know, make, making friends and stuff, but it was pretty difficult that first year. Um, and so, you know, uh, I, you know, just to put this into context, I, I left the Air Force in August of 2015, you know, uh, set foot on campus in September, and then something happened in October, which, you know, later became, you know, headline news, and probably a lot of listeners of this conversation will remember what now, be, you know, it's, it's now known as the, the Halloween costume controversy uh, at Yale with the Christakis's, um, and this was kind of the... I don't know, the birth or at least like the early glimmers of what later came to be known as wokeness, um, where essentially the Yale administration sent out this email to the college, to the university, uh, to the students, you know, basically saying, you know, well, Halloween's coming up. Don't culturally appropriate costumes and don't be, you know, just be sensitive and don't whatever, don't be offensive in what you wear. And then Erica Christakis, who was on the faculty at Yale, she wrote something just to her. She was associate master of one of the small residential colleges on campus. She said something just to her students, you know, basically defending freedom of expression and saying, like, do we really need the administration interfering in our lives for something like Halloween costumes? You're all adults. If you wear something and someone doesn't like it, you all can just talk to each other. And the response was, I mean, it was like for me, it was surreal. Um, I think it was kind of people in general were surprised by it just based on the sort of response from the media and response from people. But for me, it was like, like I, I like was on another planet. Um, I read that email from Erica four or five times and it seemed perfectly reasonable to me, you know, did not, didn't, it didn't even seem provocative. <laughs> like it didn't even seem like anything. Um, and, uh, and the response was, you know, students, hundreds of students marching around Yale calling for her to be fired, calling for her husband to be fired. Her husband later defended her and defended the principles she was standing up for. There's this famous viral video of Nicholas Christakis in the courtyard of his college, surrounded by students who are yelling at him and calling him all kinds of names. I remember um, that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so these, you know, these students saying, you know, these two people need to be fired and they're, you know, they're emblematic of, you know, systemic racism on campus and in America and overall, and they turned it into this big thing. And I was like, I didn't understand. So I would ask students about this and I got like pretty mixed responses. Um, you know, some student, like there was one girl I asked, like, can you just explain to me why this email was offensive? Or can you explain like, what, what, what's like, what's the controversy about exactly? And she was, you know, some, you know, she went to Exeter, which is an expensive private boarding school, you know, grew up in Greenwich, which is, you know, a very wealthy neighborhood or area in Connecticut. And she told me that I was too privileged to understand the pain that these two professors had caused the students and that I was just, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't informed enough to understand. And I just, it's really, it's really like the crux of, of this whole thing. Like when people read your memoir, something that, that stuck out for me, that's, that was 
I don't know. It just, it stayed with me. You described the, the first time that someone ever bought you an ice cream. And I think you were maybe eight years old, mm-hmm. something like that. You'd never had yeah. a birthday cake presents. You know, this is a, a, a level and like a tone of deprivation and not cruelty in, in the sense of like intentional cruelty, but um, that so many Americans just will not be able to understand or relate to. And you don't write it in a way that, you know, you're not trying to elicit sympathy. Like I love this about the book is that you're really kind of trying to redirect people's attention to um, the danger of, of propagating these so-called luxury beliefs, which we'll get into, but it it seems like this, (laughs) this incident where you're, where you're on, on the campus at Yale and you're, you're trying to understand, you're like, hi, I don't really get this, what's going on. And you're asking questions. And then it's like, this moment must have really driven home for you what this um, divide was all about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really, it really did. I mean, yeah, it's funny. Like you, you brought up the, the birthday cake thing and all this stuff. It's like, I, it's, it was, it's even now to this day, despite writing about it, it's such a part of my life that it doesn't even register as anything particularly notable. Um, but I, I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, it, it, it is in a sort of an objective sense. Um, yeah, that I never celebrated. I mean, so my birthday is in December, pretty close to Christmas. And so birthdays would just oh, well, pass by sucks. unnoticed. That always sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, so of course, we're like on winter break from school and the foster parents were not really, you know, they weren't really that attentive. And so it just kind of passed by. Um, and yeah, like not, not having toys or like if there was a toy, you know, you have to share it with eight other kids. And so really it's the same as there being no toys. Uh, and so it's really just, um, yeah, that's that's the kind of uh, environment that a lot of kids in the country are living in and a kind of environment that I think a lot of students and graduates of elite universities don't even think about. It doesn't even cross their mind. I mean, one thing that I, I write early on in the book is that I've, I've met, you know, by now I've met quite a few people who are, you know, pretty well off. And some of them have legitimately tried to imagine what it would be like to be poor. But I've never met a single person who's ever tried to imagine what it would be like to grow up without their family, of being an orphan, of being completely disconnected from any kind of relative or any kind of adult who has your best interest in mind. And, you know, this is just, you know, another another reason why I wanted to, you know, acknowledge the importance of, you know, economics and material deprivation, but also highlight the importance of family and care and attachment and making sure that ensuring that a kid has um, some kind of caregiver around that will truly, um, look out for them. And so, yeah, the Yale experience, I mean, I, when I arrived on campus, I knew, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty well-known campus. So I knew that, you know, there are going to be a lot of rich kids here and people who came from very different class backgrounds than me, you know, in terms of economic class, but I wasn't fully prepared for the differences in our, like the social aspect of class of what our lives were like about the kind of families that we grew up in. Mm-hmm. So I tell this story of at one point I was in this, um, this classroom with, uh, there were 20 students in total and the professor administered this anonymous survey asking how many of us were um, raised by both of our birth parents. And she, it was an anonymous poll and the professor pulled up the results on a PowerPoint slide 
And, you know, there was like one giant bar and then one like minuscule bar and the giant bar, 90% of the students, um, 18 out of the 20 were raised by both of their birth parents and two weren't. So it was me. And then one of the other students, I didn't know who it was, but that just floored me because I expected it to be, I don't know if I would have guessed maybe 60, 40 or 50, 50, something like that. I don't know, not 90, 10. Uh, and then in the book later, you know, I dug into some of the surveys and data and research, and this is a pretty consistent pattern at elite universities where the vast majority of students are raised by two parents, um, often two college graduate parents. Um, and so I don't think that's a, that's a coincidence that the kinds of people who end up going to these kinds of universities are raised by married parents who are stable and intact and prioritize the well-being of their children. And then when I think back to where I grew up in California, uh, it was me and five of my best friends and none of us were raised by both of our parents. Uh, And I'm the only one who went to college out of the six of us. And only through this kind of winding, uh, uncertain, you know, plenty of setbacks and hiccups along the way before I finally arrived on campus. Uh, Whereas for my other five friends, it was never, you know, it wasn't even on their radar, the possibility of going to college. So yeah, it was, um, you know, of course there were other, other kind of aspects uh, to campus life that I was unprepared for, but that was definitely one of them. And then, yeah, the, I mean, that, that, that moment in that classroom when I saw those, the, the disparity in our family lives, that was one of the, you know, the first inkling I had that maybe, you know, there's something to this, I, I didn't have a term yet for it, but when I would hear the students denigrate or downplay the importance of family or the importance of marriage or these kinds of things, and then, realizing these were coming from students who had benefited from that very structure that they were uh, attempting to tarnish. The luxury beliefs idea started to develop in my mind. We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.